Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond with your host, NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by Coindesk. All right. So I am here with the infamous Peter McCormick. How are you doing, man? I'm do doing very well. How are you, Nathaniel? Very strange times right now. Uh, it is it is strange times. Like, we, man, I, I feel like uh, our younger selves talked about strange times last year, probably, and you know, whatever. Like, it, it's 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 officially crazy times, and it seems like it's been especially crazy for you lately. Well, yeah, but well, I think it's strange for everyone now, and I think the situation that we all feared. I don't know actually. I kind of get the feeling some people. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and pick my words carefully, but some people are watching this situation and seeing things they expected to play in the play out in terms of governments and and the centralized control play out exactly as they've always said it would, and I'm very fearful right now of getting into the whole um, uh, extended reach of the state. That this is going to be used by the government to to exert bigger control over us. They're going to put the army on the streets and reduce our civil liberty, reduce our civil liberties, and take control of our money. Blah blah blah. All those things that people in our field have been talking about for quite a long time. That's been happening anyway. That seems to be be accelerating right now. My view is that I understand why some of this is accelerating now in terms of the armies on the streets. And I'd like to unwrap that with you actually and go into that. And I think it's a natural reaction by the government. And I just think we need to be very careful to hold them to an account that when we come out at the end of this, this doesn't change the way we are treated as humans. And it doesn't change our relationship between us and the government. Yeah, I mean, this is you and I were starting to chat about this the other day, but mm. this is uh, it is not good for Twitter engagement. But this is a time that really, really calls for nuance in the way that we because there's so many things that are not mutually exclusive you can believe that it is a time for extraordinary measures while also wanting very ardently to ensure that the those extraordinary measures in those extraordinary times aren't just kind of casually uh filtered to normal right yeah. and uh and the, the the problem is that a lot of the dialogue around those things is going to be totally binary either a fear panic based reaction of uh you know we'll give away all our liberty for the sake of security or on the other hand a uh, a dismissive almost uh you know like the 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 government shouldn't be helping at all because it's going to just lead to this it's also the slippery slope right the slippery mm -hmm. slope argument and there is a big big middle space that is about specifics and i think that that's what i keep coming back to it's like let's not uh, uh for me what i'm watching personally is specific instances of you know, even even to the granularity of like, what is the nature of the conversation that the U.S. government is having right now with Facebook, Google? What's the type of data? What are they looking in aggregate data? Is their person like, you know, these things, these nuances are are important. Even if you're coming from a a, a position of um, a, a very strong kind of personal privacy and personal liberty, and and unfortunately, I think that it's it's hard to have nuanced calm discussions in in a time where honestly the volume is you know this this time goes to 11 but it's actually like 13 you know or 14 mm. right now i think nuance is is important here like you said um i saw something on twitter the other day where somebody or even today somebody said and i think it might have been in san francisco certainly california 
that somebody was fined $400 for walking their dog or being with a friend or something. And again, I don't know if that's true. It sounds believable. And if it hasn't happened, sounds like the type of thing that is going to happen. But I think it's a bit unnecessary. I think it's one of those situations where the person, the police officers could have said, look, we need people off the streets and this is why. But I, I, where I get really stuck at the moment is um, I've been led down the road, a new road in my life with libertarians and anarcho-capitalists who talk about personal freedom and nobody should tell anyone what to do, etc., etc. And I fully understand that. And there's a lot I agree with. I talked to Giacomo Zucco about this the other day. I agree with a lot of it. But also at the same time, we aren't. We don't have anywhere an anarcho-capitalist society. We don't have anywhere have a libertarian government. So we are in, this, in, in a world where we have the state and the state is going to respond to a situation like this. And watching the footage in Italy, which is quite frankly terrifying. I've watched the footage in the hospital today. Uh, we've also just had a news announcement from in London where, listen to this. This is um, a critical incident at London Hospital after surge in coronavirus cases. Basically, they've hit capacity. Their ICU has hit, mm -hmm. hit capacity. So if the ICU is at capacity, they're going to have to be at that point where they choose who to treat. If you don't have enough ventilators, you're going to have to give somebody some, another option. Perhaps that's some kind of hand ventilator. Or perhaps you don't have a machine. Or perhaps you have to turn around to a 92-year-old and give their machine to a 46-year-old because they've got more chance of survival and... And that's the decisions they're going to have to be making. And I've, I've got a friend who works at an ICU in Australia, and he said we're very early now, but we are preparing for wartime triage where we are going to have to be choosing about who to give machines to and who we help survive and who we may have to let go. And he said it's, he's terrified. So we, we are at this situation where we've seen something expand rapidly globally. In the space of a few months, it's gone from patient zero in China to thousands of people die, like over a thousand people dying now per 24 hours i think we've hit that point infection rates are obscene so if a government is going to respond whilst we don't want infringements on our liber civil liberties and we want everyone to have take personal have personal freedom personal choice i can still understand why the, the government is thinking well we perhaps need to put the army on the streets and say to people stay home and this is why because you're going to get sick and you might make other people sick. And and I guess a tough nuance in that is, well, somebody who's a libertarian might say, well, I, I observe the non-aggression principle. I'm not going to go near anybody else and I'm not going to spread this because I don't want to make anyone sick and I'm just going to keep myself to myself. But what happens if they get on a bus or go somewhere and they, they leave, you know, they are infective and they, infected and they leave, you know, the virus on a surface for three days and infect somebody else? So... I very much want to support civil liberties and freedom and not have an extension of the state. But right now, I really understand why some of the governments are doing what they're doing. Does that make sense? Listen, absolutely. I, I think, too, again, let's keep, since I've already screwed myself by saying that the theme of the conversation is going to be nuanced, let's keep going with this theme, right? Like, there is, there's a very strong argument if you are kind of a small government-oriented person that one of the functions of the state should be to, uh, to be able to uh, exert power in this sort of situation, right? To be able to have effective state power deployed. In fact, Tyler Cowen, who is one of the, probably the most uh widely read 
uh, you know, popular libertarians, right? Marginal revolution. He's not on the fringes of, of intellectual society. He's right in the mainstream, right? He's interviewed everyone. He wrote about this. He has a, a term for it that I'll pull up at some point when you're talking because it's, it's worth looking. But this is part of his argument is that it's not a... a, a, a it's not mutually exclusive to be a small L libertarian, but also think that this sort of the, the state being able to deploy the right type of power in these situations is correct. Now, the interesting thing is, is what does it look like to be correct? One thing that's been really fascinating for me to watch uh, over the last week. So I'm in New York, right? I'm in, uh, mm-hmm. in the Hudson Valley. So I'm outside of New York City. There's been a huge kind of disagreement between Cuomo and de Blasio. De Blasio keeps talking about shelter in place. He wants shelter in place. And Cuomo has been aggressive about that in every press conference he said words matter and he's he's you know so basically new york for those who haven't been paying attention has decreased uh, on wednesday they said that only 50 percent of the workforce of non-essential uh businesses could go into work right so uh you know this is and this is after restaurants had gone takeout only and certain types of businesses had been closed down where there's a lot of you know interaction and things like that but even aside all that any other business wednesday it was 50 percent uh thursday it was 75 percent today it went to 100 percent and he said this is the most severe thing and and he was like you know basically the the point that he was making is that shelter in place is a specific term that now refers to an active shooter it came from uh when uh from the nuclear era when it meant literally go to the center of your house and stay there until you hear clear what he's his point was that when we say shelter in place it scares people like we're not in the business of imprisoning people in their homes what we're saying is that what we can do and there's plenty of people who argue that this is still too extreme in a, from a business perspective but he's like what we can do is say businesses can't operate right now uh and what we can do is we say we can say uh, please don't leave your home for anything other than essential. But like a, a walk is uh, essential for some people's mental health. Walking your dog, you're not going to be fine for that, right? Uh, and so it's it's an interesting little tightrope where he's trying to get as much voluntary contribution from people so that there doesn't have to be draconian measures, you know? But at the same time, he kind of went off on young people who aren't taking this seriously. Like, so there's there's this there's this tightrope act, but there there is a, uh, a possibility of getting that tightrope act right. I think one thing that I haven't seen from the conversation that's been frustrating me is, uh, okay, so, so let's play this out. We're talking about, well, what are the real economic impacts of this? And we're talking about how does the state retreat from that authority, right, later? And it seems very clear to me that the reason that this thing is so deadly is the overwhelming of the healthcare system, right? It is. Mm-hmm. It is not. A, it. It's not just a. You know, like it is about the way that the healthcare system gets overwhelmed. I just heard of a friend right before this call who lost her nine, 99 year old mother or grandmother because not because of coronavirus, but because the hospital wouldn't let her in. They didn't have any space for her. Mm-hmm. So, like that is. It's a hospital capacity question. The, the, we need a friggin' like uh, very fast Marshall Plan right now for getting all of the medical supplies, for getting the field hospitals, for deploying that full might, so that because we will have to resume life, but we we need this new infrastructure. And guess what? Like we could be potentially putting people to work building that infrastructure. Like that's that is the key thing, and that's the point at which well, how do we get to transition back to a different life? We have the infrastructure to be able to deal with this as what it is, which is a very virulent but addressable virus. Mm. It's a 
very, very complicated situation. Um, I mean, do you know what the other thing? Are we, are we the same age? I can't remember if I'm a bit older. I'm 41. I'm 35. You're 35. Uh, so. so you're a bit younger, but like similarish. Um, it's such a strange situation. It's all. It's almost overwhelming, in that. I, about two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, I called my father because he's 72 and he's a smoker and has bronchitis. So he is prime candidate for contracting, if he contracts coronavirus, that he would almost certainly need a ventilator and possibly die. You know, he's a prime candidate candidate because it's a respiratory virus. So I phoned him two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago. Actually, I phoned my brother first. I said, well, I think we need to put dad into lockdown. And my brother wasn't sure. And then about two days later, he agreed. And I said, Dad, now's the time. And he said, I can't. I've got all my golf stuff on. I was like, hold on, Dad. You need to really understand this. And I took him through it. And then I also phoned my ex-wife's parents and, and did the same. And I think I think I realized how serious this was, probably a little bit ahead of my friends because of the world we live and work in. Yeah, yeah. We're attached to the news a bit more. We follow it a bit more. But it's this kind of weird kind of spectrum of, Wanting to take it seriously as possible without looking ridiculous to other people who think you're panicking. And I think everybody's eventually going to get to on the spectrum to the to the extreme end where they realise how serious this is. It's just going to take them a lot of time. But as as we get there, we've got to make some serious decisions. And I don't know if... I, I, I don't want to be the person who stands there and says, well, I think the state should should take control of us and put the army on the streets and tell us what to do because we live in this Bitcoin world whereas if you ever show any form of statism it's used as an insult against you. Oh you bloody statist. You're a statist. You're a bootlicker. You're a government loving statist. Any kind of insult. So you're you're almost questioning yourself saying well I am. I'm thinking fuck I, th- I think there's a lot the state can do right now. I think there's certain things the state can do better than individuals can do on their own right because i believe they just put some enforcement in place and it's gross and it's scary and it's terrifying and you made a really you made a really good use of um language when you said um when they how how does the state retract from this position which is very Mm -hmm. i think you've articulated that perfectly but right now if we were to just give advice to people and tell them what to do. We saw what happened in Nashville or on the beaches in Florida. People were ignoring it. And I just feel like I, I almost don't want to have the, the state argument now, the libertarian argument now. I want to say, what is the best thing we can do? And I'm not going to get over upset by certain actions of the state. Because just because just so many fucking people are going to die. And I think, I, and then I try and measure it and I, I try and question it to myself. And I think, all right, well, if, if freedom is the most important thing to me and civil liberties, then we should give everyone the advice, but let everyone have free will to choose what they will do. But does that ultimately lead to many more people dying? Giacomo Zucco will come and give a very good nuanced argument about why I'm wrong. I just, my gut feel thinks that this is a situation where we have no choice but the state to put in some, some draconian measures. But I, I say it with this kind of Bitcoin of guilt, thinking oh, I'm not meant to stand for this. I'm meant to be against <laughs> this. I'm meant to say, no, this isn't right. And, and and almost certainly a lot of the stuff they're going to do is wrong. I think the UK government's initial decision seemed brave. And within two days, I was like, no, you got this wrong. You fucked that up. I think almost yeah. certainly Trump has got a, an awful lot wrong. And I really don't like his rebranding of 
the virus as the Chinese virus. I think he's running every press press conference like a PR exercise for the 2020 election. I don't like that. And that doesn't mean I support China or I'm a CCC bootlicker. I just don't like that. So I think the governments are going to make a lot of fucking mistakes because they're dealing with something unprecedented and it's really, really hard. But at the same time, I, I, I don't know. I don't feel like I'm in this place that I can give some... I don't know. I don't think now is the time to be arguing over civil civil liberties in terms of some of the decisions the state's making now. I think now's the time to say, how do we ensure when this is over that they do retract from these positions, that we don't lose a bunch of freedoms, well, the limited freedoms we already have, we don't lose them. And I think that's more, a more practical place to approach it from. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think uh, my, my feeling is almost always, and certainly in this case, is that everyone gets to have a different voice and a different importance. One of the things that I've always loved about uh, Bitcoiners much more extreme than I am, whether it's about uh, about the crypto industry or whether it's about uh, libertarian politics or anything like that, is that they provide uh, an, an, unflapping, uh, an unflappably um, clear pull of the discourse, right? That that is that is an anchor point that you can go to. That the and and I think that uh, a, a free, open society only works if you can have perspectives at both extremes screaming at each other. Now, where I usually find myself is wanting, I, I'm, I tend by nature to be radically more pragmatic than I would like to be even. Like I have this very strong and weird combination of, uh, of incredibly uh, kind of frustrated and passionate, but then like want to hone in on the thing that can be addressed. So right now, for example, I'm looking at this bill that was happening before coronavirus that is trying to get end-to-end -end encryption uh, out of the way, right? And this has been, uh, yep. Attorney General Barr has been fighting this fight since since a while ago, right? It's been him versus Apple. And Apple has been fighting, but they've, you know, they've kowtowed in certain ways at certain points. Uh, but the that's a that is a specific discrete thing right that doesn't really necessarily have to do i think smart people can argue about how much tracking and surveillance is really necessary for this you know and although in some ways i'm much more worried about uh about the the tracking and surveilling of every citizen via their mobile app uh than i am about uh local police forces enforcing a curfew even if i think like you know curfews seem like a weird you know choice to me right like the, in some ways they, those are different things so i'm going to be flying the flag of and screaming about that that other thing that specific thing um and, but you know i also think that right now there is a little bit of a pick your battles situation in the sense of there are some things that have left the station like no one like we have gone from uh a, 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 there, there is no longer any political space for not direct intervention in people's bank accounts in in this and i think there's a lot of reasons for that i think that the biggest reason is that there's also no political will in congress or the senate to not bail out companies but they also having lived through 2008 know that they can't not bail out regular people and bail out companies as well uh or, or they can't bail out companies and not bail out regular people as well there's no way that anyone will get voted but perhaps they can you know they're, they're very scared to let industries to let companies die 
right? Mm -hmm. Like the, this is a this is a system that feels fragile to everyone that they're going to try to preserve with whatever they can. So like us screaming about UBI and things like this or whatever, you know, or, you know, quantitative easing and the money printer, like these are the, the new narratives, the new memes. But the reality is, is that this is a situation where we already had an answer to that, which is Bitcoin and participation in the Bitcoin mm -hmm. ecosystem. And for the first time, this crisis is the first one that's happened where there is a voluntary opt-out mechanism, at least on some level. Now, we all live in societies, so I think it's overstated to say that we're opting out entirely. But there is this other thing, right? So I feel like a lot of this has to do with uh, with one, picking your battles, two, figuring out where there's actually levers of change to pull. And uh, and the reality is, is that when, when people are dying, when hospitals are being overwhelmed, and when people are losing their jobs, you're not going to win most arguments about not intervening. So I, I, I go far, I go right to the other side of that conversation and say, there will be a time at which uh, this has gotten more under control, right? Where the, mm -hmm. the healthcare system has gotten more uh, under control. What do we, wh what can we not give up on the way? Yeah. Do you know, can I talk about something as well that I still haven't seen the answer for? Because, mm -hmm. so we're at this point now where we're having to put Every every almost country is going through the same steps, just at a different time. And I'm seeing the U.S. is doing it. If you think, think each state is more like a country, they're, they're going through a similar process, whereby it's, okay, we've got some infections. Okay, the infections are going up. We've had a death. Oh, now we've had double figures deaths. Now now the uptick's starting to happen. So the U.K. is in the, the real uptick right now. Italy is way ahead of everybody. France and Spain, Germany aren't looking great. You know, US is starting to pick up. And, and during that process, they go through a... You have concerns from the politicians that... Initially, they start talking about perhaps we won't have enough ventilators or enough machines. And then they start talking about, okay, we're probably going to have to consider social distancing. And people start to make some of their own choices. A little bit of panic buying, you know, maybe telling their parents to lock themselves down. And then the government comes in and says, okay, we need to enforce some social distancing we're going to close down the schools okay now you can't go to work everyone should work from home and now it's full lockdown every every country appears to be following a very similar trajectory with all of this mm -hmm. which is and the reason they're following that trajectory is because of the the infection rates are so rapid that as you said earlier the health systems are coming under so much pressure what i don't understand is and what any, nobody has explained is, how do we come out of this? Because even if in, say, say the UK can reduce the, flatten the curve. We've heard this, <laughs> flatten the curve. Say they can do it in 12 weeks or even 16. We've got three to four months of lockdown. Suppose they flatten the curve. Then what? <laughs> what do you do there? If, we, if we're talking about not having a vaccine for, say, 18 months, even a year, let's say even a year. What happens between month three and four and month 12? Are a, well, are a handful of people allowed to go to work? Are, is specific towns allowed to go to work? Do we have to have in some place some way of tracking who has an infection and who they're coming to touch with? And if a new infection happens, then, it, then or anyone who's coming to touch with that person has to be locked down again. Um, if you do that, we're going to have schizophrenic businesses that pop up and shut down very quickly. So that's not going to be operational. We're never going to get children back to school. So it feels like, realistically, we're in this until there's a vaccine. I can't see how we come out of it. And, and I'll be honest, this is the first time in my life I've actually been 
really scared. Not personally, just more scared generally for people and what's going to happen over the next 12 months because you've got entire industries of... I mean, the airline industry is, is done right now, pretty much. The, the crew, nobody's going to go on a cruise right now. Hotels are screwed. But, and then all the knock-on businesses from there. What about the restaurants in the hotels? What about the companies that supply the parts to the airlines? What about the engineers who work for the airlines? What about the, what about the airports themselves? What about the taxi drivers that take people from the airport home? The knock-on effect from this, I, I think, is frightening. I don't, and I don't know the answer, but I just don't see... Are we, are we in this? Are we all locked down now for a year? Well, I do think so. A couple thoughts. First is that there uh, there is going to be some precedent, right? We can watch how Asia is trying to manage this and see what works. And the thing that's clear is that they redesigned. I mean, they were already way ahead of us on this. But the the you don't go into a building right now in Singapore without having your temperature checked, right? It is just mm-hmm. a totally different experience of life, where everything is about controlling potential. Uh, outbreaks, right? And being able to get that cluster. There's still, I think there's still really good questions about school and how that's working and everything else. But I think that it's going to be uh, an extreme amount of vigilant data gathering and information. Um, so that's kind of like part, part one. I mean, but but at least if nothing else, the the uh, there will be some we have a couple months to of of we're behind by enough time to see what's working right they i mean for better or worse they get to be the guinea pigs uh you know in this um i think the the second part is you know we've largely because it's really i mean uh, let's be clear about what our timeline is it has really only been a few weeks since uh, the U.S. started to take this seriously. February 24th was literally the first day that markets reacted to this at all in the U.S. I know because it was the day that Caitlin Long announced Avanti and I interviewed her and we were talking about how the markets had just started to react for the first time. February 12th, meanwhile, was all-time highs, right? So 12 days between between that and, and, and less trading days, obviously. Uh, and now we're only, we are only, <laughs> we're at the end right now of the first full week where the U.S. president acknowledged the severity of this thing and wasn't just calling it uh, another flu, right? If you go back not to, to to two Mondays ago, right? So four days ago and then seven days before that, he put out a tweet about how the flu kills so many more people, right? It wasn't until Wednesday of that week that Tom Hanks got it, the NBA shut down, and Trump got on TV and said, we actually have to do something about mm-hmm. this. Uh, so we're, we're really still like in the US, we're like, seven working days, you know, nine days total into the the leadership of the country not being totally insane about this thing. Uh, And we've done, uh, it's almost like I'm watching this weird thing. Like this is a, to me, this is a, a health issue that creates a financial markets issue that creates an economic issue that cr- potentially creates a geopolitical issue. And it's almost like we're watching these things like, fi- so, you know, the, we're finally taking the health issue seriously. However, we're dealing right now with the uh, with the still testing dimension of it. Right. Not the not the, the overwhelm the healthcare system yet, which is what's right around the corner, which is why people are so scared and they should be from an infrastructure perspective. Uh, with the financial markets, 
obviously we've seen a huge sell-off, but the the Fed is using every tool that it has. The federal government is obviously using every tool that it has to try to keep this in check. What we haven't experienced yet is the economic knock-on, really, right? Because again, mm-hmm. people haven't been out of work for long. Uh, you know, if again, if you go back to Cuomo, he went from fifty percent of the workforce to seventy-five percent of the workforce to one hundred percent over three days. He knew the math. He knew exactly how much this was going to go. He gave, he used that time, I believe, to get people more and more used to the idea, right? Rather than going zero to one hundred and scaring the shit out of people, that was a specific psychological tactic. You know, which which honestly, I applaud him for. I think in some ways is the correct call, although. Maybe a week earlier or whatever, right? So you've got you, you've got the the just the beginnings of the economic hardship that this is going to represent, and we have never had anything this fast, you know. And like the the only hope is that it's uh, you know someone called it World War Three for ninety days, and that's that would be the best case scenario where by July fifteenth, when U.S. taxes are due, and you know that we actually have gotten the healthcare system under control, people can start to go back to work, and the big money printing machine, you know, has has helped people get through that 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 part or whatever it is, right? People uh, have have done it together. I'm more worried because I see, uh, like you, I think that it's the it's it's everything. That it's so much more than just the twenty percent of the twenty percent of people are in the service industry, right? So you've already got that, but there's a million more things that aren't accounted for that. And and you, I think that you come across this like you just think for a little bit, right? Like you know, we've joked about this before, but uh, our, our family's favorite hobby is Magic the Gathering. There are thousands and thousands of local game stores all around the country who are for tons of different games, but they're anchored around that, who are just cooked. There's no, they're, they're already hanging on by a thread because they're from a different time, right? Mm-hmm. Where we went to stores and, you know, played games together rather than doing it online, which is so much more convenient. Like the number of that, that companies in that space, small businesses that are going to shut down is going to be enormous. And like, I don't know, card stores, like your local bath and body shop, that's just someone who had a dream, like florists, like, you name it, you know what I mean? Like, the, I think we haven't even begun to grapple with what that might mean. Now, the the thing that I think that we're extra not grappling with, though, is the uh, what might happen geopolitically globally, right? Like we are already at the the tail end of the U.S. designed post World War II order, where uh, we are retreating. We are aggressively retreating from the world. You know, I mean, this has been. Uh, uh, Trump, uh, you know, I mean, it, he's continuing things. He's accelerated it, certainly. But this has been uh, going on for a while as a, a retreat from the world. And well, one of the few happens, things I actually like, I was going to say, that's one of the few things I actually like about what Trump's been doing. He seems to want to get is, away from wars and uh, intervention, which is one of the few things I actually admire about him. Well, it's, I, I agree. I am, I am no fan of war. But I do think, too, that there is a there are untold consequences, right, in terms of like when you start to unwind uh, an order where uh, everything is interconnected from a, a global shipping, what you do is you create a scenario where all of a sudden there are uh, really rich countries and really poor countries, not based on where they sit in the global order, but based on their actual resources. Mm-hmm. And it does not look, I mean, this is, I, I'm literally just a parrot for Peter Zahan right now, who just wrote Disunited Nations. Um, but this is my background too. This is where, like, when I when I first, you know, uh, I was in global change systems and things like that. I thought I was going to spend my life working in Israel, Palestine, or Uganda and Rwanda. And, uh, and I think that we, we haven't grappled that except maybe a little in the, like, even the Chinese virus thing, which I, I feel very similar to you about. The, the, the cynical brilliance of this guy when it comes to manipulating the news cycle is unfathomable. And uh, this is, I thought for sure, 
the in, uh, incalculably bad response that he has had to coronavirus was going to be his undoing. But I think the ability to shift it to a us versus them at a time when everyone's angry, it plays right into the to the rights narrative that liberals are just, you know, uh, social justice warriors who are concerned about racism. Like this is a thing that is basically definitionally racist. But that's not the point. He's not doing it as a dog whistle racism thing. That's just a fun byproduct, right? The reason that he's doing this is a uh, is two things. One is that the CCP is in a fight for their life because the Chinese citizens have never been as closer to uh, to rebelling as they are now after this situation. Agreed. And so they are desperately trying to put that narrative uh, of the U.S. actually starting it, right? So uh, there's one, there's a, uh, a geopolitical brinksmanship being played there, signals to the rest of the world. That's one thing that's going on. Now, I think that there's a lot of uh, very smart, savvy geopolitical thinkers who think that uh, fought, like responding to that in kind is a really stupid strategy. So I'm not commenting on the, the, the quality of the strategy. I'm just saying that's part of it. The second part of it is this fucker has to Excuse me, listeners, but he has to uh, he has to uh, he has to shift the narrative from literally, like I said, two Mondays ago, he was saying it was as bad as the flu to I've always taken this seriously. And in fact, if you go back, the one thing he did do is close the borders to China real fast because that was fine with him. Right. That was played played into what he did. He wants mm-hmm. everyone to say, like, it was a Chinese virus. I closed the borders to China. We did everything, you know, like that. And it, it plays perfectly to yeah. his political base. It's an easier narrative. You know, it's an easier narrative than me in October going back and showing, well, like this was the death toll at this time. And this is what they said. And this was the death toll. That, like no one's going to care. They're just going to like when the with the other option is Chinese virus. It was their fault. Right. So I find Ben Shapiro an interesting character. I, I disagree with a lot of what he says. I think he his delivery sometimes is a little bit sinister and I think he likes to be angry about things but I also admire some of the things he does and the way, the way things he explains and one of the things I like he does with Trump is he will say about the things he thinks he's done well and he'll criticize him mm-hmm. um, one of the real problems I have with politics right now is the um, yeah I said it on Twitter the other day somebody was like uh, uh, Trump derangement syndrome but there is a t- Trump defensive syndrome whereby anything mm-hmm. he does however agrarious can be defended and I think the most interesting people who are able to politically observe and criticize and compliment and give credit where due to both sides rather than just say always you know like oh that's just the liberal left-wing way or just say oh oh, oh, oh or, or just that uni, unilateral hatred for Trump. I, I can't, neither work for me. And the reason they don't work, because it's just completely intellectually dishonest. There is no world which suits... There is no world where everything is correct right or everything's correct left, because it doesn't account for different personality types and different economic positions. And I think the most intellectually honest thing you can ever do is, is be fair and be critical. And I was... I, I've defended Trump sometimes, and which, by the way, in the UK is a really hard thing to do. You're trying to, it's really hard. You're not talking about 50% of the nation. You're talking about 5% of the nation who will agree with you. Everyone thinks he's a fucking yeah, yeah. moron. Honestly, everyone thinks he's a moron. I tried it with my brother and my dad over over Christmas, and my brother refused to talk to me. And um, and I said to him, well, the thing about Trump is I don't love him, but I, I think he would, I'd rather him as the leader of the US than Hillary if I had to choose just because I think Hillary is is crooked and, and, and evil, whereas I think Trump is just at times stupid. But I, so I, I said the other day, when he called it the China virus, I said the rebranding, I, I, think, I think it's a disgrace. And the reason I think it's a dis- disgrace is for a couple of reasons. I think, firstly, 
it's I think all his press conferences are run as PR exercises. Mm-hmm. For him to be calling, well, that's, that's for sure. That yeah, you know, partway through one of them, somebody said something about Joe Biden. He said, "Yeah, sleepy Joe." This I just think is so immature, pathetic. At a time when he's addressing the nation at the biggest crisis the U.S. may ever face, the the world may ever have faced, um, at, at, a, at a time where. He needs to be addressing the nation. He's putting his little childish digs in about Joe Biden, and I th- I think that was pathetic. I think calling it the China virus was totally a deflection exercise. And the really important thing for me, and I would have been equally critical if that's this had been a UK leader, is that during the the biggest crisis a country has ever faced, or one of the you know top crises a country has ever faced that you are still entirely focused on your personal reputation, that right now all you're think clearly thinking about is will I win the 2020 election, firstly, if it goes ahead. Let's just assume it's going to go ahead. And by the way, three months ago it was a slam dunk. I, I think even a month ago it was a slam dunk. He was winning the mm-hmm. next election. Mm-hmm. I don't think even Biden or Bernie Sanders would have the ability to to remove him. I think this... I think this coronavirus and what happens puts under threat. I think it makes it more debatable about whether he'll win the next election because he's going to be judged entirely on this. And it might be out of his hands. You know, he might have done the best things possible. He might have put in the best policies possible straight away. Either way, a lot of people are going to die and there's going to be an economic crisis. And because of that, people might hold him accountable, even though he couldn't have done anything anyone else had done. But for him at this time to be using the most important time in the country as a, as a continual and very obvious PR exercise, I think that's disgraceful because I, I understand a small amount of it's going to happen. But for each time for him to come out and say, we've done a perfect job, we've got, the, we've got these people, they're amazing, they're tremendous, they're doing a perfect job. I, I think it's great to talk people up, but but every time he refers back to himself, he said, well, I, I did the best job possible here. He's He's got universal belief that everything he does is perfect and right, without any self-awareness. Uh, and I just think it's a dangerous time to be starting a a war of words with the Chinese. And just in response, because if people listen to this, they might give some of the response I got on Twitter. Firstly, they said, no, you just want to, you're just a typical uh, liberal left focus on racism. Okay, firstly, I'm not lefty. Secondly, I never even want to mention racism. This to me was never about racism. This to me was about leadership. And I just thought it demonstrated weak leadership also people were saying well such and such at the ccp had blamed the u.s i said fine then turn around and say there's been accusations in the press from from x who said this is a a u.s engineered virus this is obviously ridiculous and we won't entertain such knowledge and we will be speaking to their ambassador i think there's more mature and better ways to deal with it than just start going the china virus like 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 he runs his every single policy and every decision is like how can he meme it and i don't know dude i just personally it's actually whereas he'd grown in my estimation as somebody where i just i thought was an idiot when he first came in and after four years i thought you know what he's not as bad as i thought he thought he's done he's done some good things there and i can understand why people like him right now I, i he's lost he's lost some credibility with me which i know some people go well you don't fucking matter who cares you you're a brit and you're a nobody but at the same time i can imagine others will be feeling this as well no i think i mean listen i think that the hard thing in american politics right now which spills into politics everywhere is that 
it is uh, it is internecine warfare. There are there are religious cults on both sides, and if you are someone who feels like can can likes people from both sides has different opinions from both sides it's not even center unfortunately center is not a really good term uh it's more like a a a bouncer right like you're Mm -hmm. like a ping pong ball because there's got like people are big and diverse and their experiences make them feel different things you know and it is uh you know i i think that's that's the challenge for people is that when when everything becomes politicized, but how how can it not be? You know, um, let me ask you a question, actually, because yeah. I want to I want to touch on this a little bit. Um, you just spent uh, you just had a big trip where you went to places that were having a hard time of it even before uh, before the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, how how have the last couple weeks? Well, one like you know what. What was that trip about, and what what were your some of your takeaways? But how has the last couple of weeks of seeing the world respond to coronavirus recontextualized it for you? Like, I, I that's the type yeah. of thing where I have trips that I took that I thought meant one thing, but in in retrospect, the thing that I learned was very different. You know? Yeah, yeah. Good, good question. So, <clears throat> the the transition f- from having a Bitcoin podcast, having two podcasts, was very much about wanting to expand outside of just being able to talk to people about Bitcoin. I did it a few times on the Bitcoin podcast, but there were subjects I wanted to touch on. And and so I launched the other one, Defiance. And really that was just to, for me to learn, you know, as an education process for me, but also, yeah, just to expand outside of the Bitcoin. And what I found very quickly in doing Defiance and traveling, because I used to travel to cities where I could cover Bitcoin and Defiance. And what I realized traveling was that actually the defiant stuff is sometimes more visual. It's it's things you need to see. You know, you need to visually see what is, you know, Hong Kong. I can do an interview with somebody about Hong Kong, but really what's going to be much more effective, much more powerful is a video of people protesting and maybe short, snappier interviews with people there. So I realized that actually defiance needs to be a, at least a film brand alongside it, potentially only a film brand. Perhaps it isn't a podcast in the future. That I don't know. So I just, and I also just wanted to become a filmmaker myself, just ambition wise. You know, I really enjoy doing the podcast. I've really enjoyed doing the specials like the one on Mount Gox. And in doing Mount Gox, I realized, sorry, I'm going off on a tangent, but bear with me. It all comes back together. Doing the Mount Gox, no, I no, realized. Well, you know what? You know what we're doing? You know what we're doing right now? We're basically doing the thing that like, you know, all, all of our elected leaders are now advising us to, which is like the way that you deal with social distancing is you just like call up your friends, do a video chat and talk about yeah. things that you wouldn't have normally talked about. So for anyone, yeah. anyone who's listening, like treat it as such. I, when I do my intro for the show, I'll make sure to make that point that it's not like we're going to go over the recent price action and, and what it all means. Yeah. It's definitely not that. But so so go off on any tangent is my point. But yeah, so when, when I did the Mount Gox series, straight away afterwards i wanted to do it again because it was just a sequential set of interviews it was six interviews actually what i really wanted to do was research Mm -hmm. the story create a narrative and an arc do the interviews knit them together and and run it Mm -hmm. like a documentary and i've been working on one about bitcoin as well which you know i'm deep into and the natural progression is i can produce audio documentaries that's fine but i'd like to produce video documentaries just a personal personal ambition so i bought all the equipment all the camera equipment and i decided i was going to head back to south america because i 
I really wanted to go to Venezuela because I could do two things. I could cover Bitcoin because it's always seen as a Bitcoin use case and I could cover the economic crisis. But as I was going there, I was like, right, I'll go to Colombia, I'll go to Bolivia and I'll go to Chile. I'll do them all together. So I went out there with this intention of just starting filming and making some film work. And then I had been talking to this producer slash camera operator for a while. And he said, look, I'll come out with you. So I was like, fine, I'll pay for you. And it was really just meant to be a test. Go out to these four countries, film a bunch of stuff, see what we've got at the end of it. We struck gold a few times. We got very lucky with what we stumbled across and the content we were able to make. But what what resonated for me was like two things came together at the same point. Somebody had said to me, you're going to really have to figure out what it is you're making, Pete, and why you're making it. What's your angle? You know, What is it about you that people should watch your videos and what you care about. And that was a re- like really stuck with me. I was like, yeah, you, you're right. I can't just film shit and put it out there. You know, what is it I do care about? And I know, I, like in my heart, I know it's human stories. I, whenever this shit's going off, I just care about the human stories at the back of it. And to give a good example of that is just having been out to Turkey and Greece with the border. Um, I think in, in that situation, everyone's got a valid argument that the, the, uh, Turkish government got a valid argument that they've got 3.7 million migrants in the country. That's a lot of pressure. How many can they take? And I think the Greek government are right when they turn around and say, look, we've already taken a million in. We can't take any more. And I think the, the people who live in Germany or Sweden who've experienced mass social unrest from the integration of migrants have got a valid argument and saying, this hasn't worked out well for us. Yet, it doesn't matter who is right. In the middle of all this, there are a bunch of people who... Are fearful or don't want to live in their homes let's let's move away from the economic migrants let's just deal with the people who want to leave iraq because the country is a basket case since the u.s war or let's talk about the people who've left somalia which is a very dangerous country or let's talk about the people who've left maybe uh burundi or just all these different countries whoever's right about their economic argument there is a group of people here that were all stuck on the border between Greece and Turkey, living in a field where women have no access to sanitary products, they've got babies they're feeding, they're all living on one or two meals handed out a day, they're trying to leave a country that doesn't want them, trying to get into another country that is firing tear gas at them, but these are just people, right? And and that's the point I'm trying to get to. I wanted to make films about people, just the, the real struggles that some people were going through. But what I found is it doesn't matter where I go, Nathaniel, the, the pattern is the same and, and the stories are the same in that there's this ongoing battle of left v. right, rich v. v poor. And, it, and this is where I end up questioning some of the libertarian stuff or you know, when people say Bitcoin fixes this because I don't believe in every single scenario Bitcoin does fix everything. Um, there is certainly a situation right now where if there is too much inequality and too much corruption, you will see uh, the the poorer poorer people tend to rise up, who tend to be a little bit more left-wing because they tend to look at the world and say, it's a bit unfair. It's a bit unfair because we're poor, we don't have health care, and we, can't, we don't have education, so we think that should be provided because that's how they feel. And we somehow got to try and find a way of getting this balance right because if if we continue to have unequal societies... It doesn't matter what you politically think is right here. It doesn't matter if you th- think these people are socialists and socialism is bad. You are still going to have violent uprisings and people are still going to die. And 
And I'm seeing this pattern, the same argument. It doesn't matter if I'm in Santiago, Chile, in Venezuela, or in, or in San Francisco. You have got the same problem of inequality leading to problems, and you've got people feeling left left out by society, or feeling that it's just a bit unfair because of because all the leaders are corrupt, and and you know what are they meant to have? And that pattern I'm seeing everywhere, like everywhere I go, and it's just a different story told in a different way. In Venezuela, it is because Maduro is. Uh, uh, essentially a ruthless dictator who took over from Chavez, who himself slipped into authoritarianism after his social program started to fail. But you've still got a rich, fee poor corruption problem there. It's the same in Chile. And I think I think we have very similar situations in Europe and the US. And I, I, I don't know. It's just, it's what I'm seeing everywhere. Oh, and I think that the... Sorry, t- sorry, I've gone on there a bit. Uh, I, I don't, I can't fully articulate it always because I'm still trying to figure it out in my head. But you also ask how how does what's happening now recontextualize that? I'm not sure it does. But but what I what I'm expecting is those situations or those countries with the highest inequality and the poorest countries are going to suffer even worse through this situation because what's going to happen is their health care systems are going to be overrun quicker they're going to have um, higher numbers of people who can't get access to the healthcare system they're going to have people whose health is might maybe slightly worse because because the, those who are poorer tend tend to have poorer health generally and i know it's a massive generalization and ultimately i think in all of these situations the more wealthy you are the more wealthy you are, the easier coronavirus is going to be for you to survive because you're going to be able to get food, you're going to be able to get access to health, and I just think it's going to disproportionately affect poorer people. So, if 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 anything, that's what I'm observing. So in 2010, Haiti had uh, the huge; it was a magnitude 7.0 earthquake yep. that was hugely devastating, right? And the reason that an earthquake like that is so much more devastating for Haiti than it would be in, say, San Francisco now, right? Mm-hmm. Who's due for one, is that what kills in an earthquake isn't uh, the earth shaking, it's buildings falling down and fire starting, right? And in a place where there is immense infrastructure, even even if you're dealing with the same same magnitude of earthquake, two wildly different outcomes. Mm-hmm. And I tend to agree that my fear with uh, with one of my fears geopolitically with the coronavirus is that like I just saw that there was a big increase in South Africa um, overnight and uh, you know South Africa is more uh, has more infrastructure than most parts of the continent but it's still uh, it's not most of Europe right it's certainly not Lombardy Italy which has one of the best health systems you know in the world um, it is uh, it is a very different thing and I think that if the if the equivalent of buildings falling down in this case is the health system 
coming under more pressure than it can. And the ripple effects, not just from people who die from coronavirus, but other mm -hmm. people who can't get treatment for other things. You know, the, the death rate doesn't stop because of coronavirus. You know, the birth rate doesn't stop because of coronavirus. Um, I think it, it, it does have the potential to disproportionately uh, impact people. And I think that what you're feeling and seeing around the world, certainly I, I've observed this as well, like one of the so uh, the reason that I thought that I was going to go spend my life doing conflict or post uh, post conflict reconstruction was the the jarring uh, disconnect between the feeling that everything was fine in the 90s and the Cold War was over and it was great. And the fact that it was it was the bloodiest decade since the 40s when it comes to violent conflict. Right. Um, in terms of numbers of people who were actually killed. And how, how, like, how could those, those two narratives didn't like exist, right? But most of the world post, post Soviet war has been in this very, we are in a very weird liminal in between scenario and have been for a while. And the challenge is that, and going back to your left versus right point, um, the, the problem in situations of desperation and inequality is power. And power seizes whatever narrative works based on that. You know, uh, what what does what does left authoritarianism and socialist fascism, how does that look practically different than than right authoritarianism and, and fascism? The answer is that it, it doesn't really. It's just what's the narrative that's useful on, on the way. And uh, and I think again, having that sort of uh, having that sort of nuance and the ability to um, the ability to speak in those terms rather than just throw around. I mean, the problem is that we've we've almost uh, we've lionized political words, right? We've made them capitals instead of lower cases, and they come with a preset of ex uh, expectations that limit our ability to understand. Right? It's it's easier to write off. Uh, a, a, a an entire country for being socialist than understanding the context in which people lived that made seeding uh, authority to people over their lives. Like most people want to live their lives uninterrupted. This was my experience, and I, you know, so my my formative years were spent basically between the Middle East and in East Africa. And the the number one thing over and over again is that if you get into people that have lived with conflict for a long time, they don't speak in the same uh, generic political terms. They speak in terms of, you know, what allows them to to live and move on with their lives, right? And that's that can be a dangerous situation. That's why Mubarak was in power in Egypt for 25 years, is that he was unbelievably good at more or less people were fine. They just didn't have autonomy over this one part of their life, right? I was in Egypt when George Bush was elected. And, uh, and you know, I was on a program basically because I was uh, I was studying there. We had two, two types of kids, like the lefty save the world kids and the going into the CIA, got to study my enemy while I learn Arabic kids. And uh, and all of us were friends because we're human beings and human beings can be friends with people who disagree, even though the, the, the media tells us differently now. And uh, on the way home, we had gotten a hotel suite to watch the election results. People couldn't believe that this guy was going to get elected again. And, and he did, obviously. And uh, and it was really, really late. We, we saw those results at like 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. We were taking a cab home and the taxi driver was going out of his way to to tell us that he understood that we didn't have any control over this and not to feel bad. Meanwhile, we actually did, right? But the, the experience of uh, of having any actual hand in electing your leader was so foreign to them. And now this is obviously, this is seven years before Tahrir Square and and, uh, and the, the Arab Spring. Um, so it's different. It changed uh, a little bit, although you know the, the legacy of that is still playing out. But 
the, the, the point of this is to say that everywhere I've ever been, what people care most about is, do I get to live my life? Am I scared for my kids? Like full stop and everything else. And that's why that's the, the danger in that comes when people can come with promises and say, cede this authority, cede this control to me, and I will give you more of that, you know? Yeah, I think the, I mean, I don't want to say the one good thing that can come out of this. What I hope is when we come out of this, I think we've got two choices, right? As people, nations, politicians, we've got a chance to to reassess how we got here and the mistakes we've made and try and, and, try and learn from this and, and have a better world, or it just gets worse. My fear is we'll get, it, it will actually get worse. We'll, but, but can we learn from this? Because I'm disenfranchised from the political process because it's so divisive. It's like you either agree with me or you agree with everything they agree with and, and you're bad. I didn't vote in the election because I couldn't vote for either Boris or Corbyn because they were they were just so so poles apart. But there were so many things in the world I'm, I'm also questioning. And I think as a, as a parent, you question it more, especially as your kids can ask questions. Yeah, and, and, and you can influence them. Like I've, my son says things now that he only says because he's my son. Like when the government recently, a few days ago, announced their massive spending plans, he was like, but dad, if they keep printing money like that, it just, the money's going to be worth less, right? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, you buy more Bitcoin. Like that's all come from him, him hearing me talk about it. But it also makes me realize that if I talk to him about politics, I can really influence him. If I just sit there and say, you know, you need to be conservative and the conservatives are better because they focus more on hard work, whereas the, uh, the labor are more socialist and they want to help everyone and make everyone's lives easy. He's going to come out thinking potentially that poor people are lazy and we should stop helping them. And, and, and that worries me as well. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not really articulate. This is kind of thing I, I wish I'd had some time to articulate and think about exactly what I wanted to say. But all I know is, is that... If I used to have a certain way of viewing the world when I used to sit on my couch, sit at home and live in Bedford and follow the news and talk to my friends and I would I would pick almost pick a side like a football team that I'd want to be on. And now as I've traveled the world and met I've been so fortunate to do this and met so many amazing people and people in difficult situations, I, I don't now, I don't want to be on a side because I realize, most of the time, the side you're on, a lot of it's got to do with where you were born. You know, the, the fortune of being born in a country like the UK versus being born in Iraq, I don't know, pre-Gulf War Two. I mean, that's what a fortunate position to be in. And a lot of what we have is just down to just pure luck and chance. And I think we're in a world now where we've got too much about I want and me and focus on me and not enough about not enough about the empathy for others. And enough regard for human life, enough regard for the really shitty situations people have to live through. God, I'm probably sounding like a really soft left-wing <laughs> liberal now, and I'm not. I, I mean, but, but isn't but isn't that but isn't that a problem when 
wanting to encourage like empathy and understanding the lived experience of people is relegated to one side or another. By the way, that used yeah. to be a small C conservative position. If, if you look back, right, like historically before the, you know, whatever, that, that was a traditionally conservative position, you know. Uh, so uh, th this is the problem is that these things, they there is inherently a dynamic between uh, leaders and the people who need to back them where it's it's a it's a process of narrative making and and freeing yourself from that and I think there's a there's a liberation to existing in a way where you're not afraid to not know things and you're not afraid to change your opinion and unfortunately nothing nothing in society really rewards you for that but I, I I'm I'm interested at least and part of the reason that I spend so much time creating these media spaces is like I feel like I had a uh, a choice uh, when it comes to the crypto space or political space or whatever like it is very clear the path to engagement is picking a tribe always and just being the best at shouting that tribe's message and this is all by the way this is not a bitcoin or ethereum thing although that it plays out a little bit like that but honestly crypto is i think light years ahead of most industries when it comes to this stuff it just feels intense because we're in it but like if you think like left versus right identity politics and shit makes bitcoiners versus ethereum kids look like absolutely nothing and you know, for, for, for me, though, like I was I, I you know, I, I just I am firmly committed to this, uh, to creating spaces where you get to say, like, this is this is my incredibly strong, intense opinion based on what I know now. But if you got something else, whether it's new facts or a new way of looking at things like bring it on. And I'm not scared of that conversation because you disagreeing doesn't fuck with who I am. It doesn't hurt my soul. It, it is an interesting thing where maybe I'll learn from that, you know, or maybe well, I'll think you're you terrible and, you know. But you're just talking about the Roger Ailes playbook, right? Fox News, Roger Ailes, when when he came in and he formed Fox News, you know, his strategy he said, let's just be conservative. Let's uh -huh. be conservative. Let's focus on Republican issues. And then we get 60% of the population. You know, because if we, if, if we do what CNN is doing and you know, MSNBC is doing, then we're fighting for the same audience. We can have all of this audience. And, and therefore, and Fox News, for me, it's an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment of a TV channel because it is never impartial in any way at all about any decision of Trump or the Republicans. It can never step back and go, do you know what? This is wrong. We shouldn't be speaking like this or, or, or these kinds of policies are wrong. It's every single thing he does, they support. And that for me is a, a really sad reflection on the world because what it does, it does divide us all and it puts us all in separate camps of hate. You know, it's not it's not what are the what are the what are the reasons that Trump should be president ahead of Joe Biden? What what can he do better? What what can we learn from it? No, let's hate Joe, sleepy Joe, let's let's humiliate him, let's really fucking humiliate him and and, and, and let's create hate for liberals and let's get the liberals and by the way, they do it the other way, and let's get the liberals hate the conservatives. Let's all just fucking hate each other and, and go to war and then wanna win our election and then for four years we're just gonna laugh at you and create memes about you. Honestly, it's not a it's not how I want to live in the world anymore. That, and in some ways, this is why I'm rejecting politics and, and stepping away from it. Or ex I'm setting this new standard of what I expect from politicians. And you're right. You know, we're in the co content space. I could very easily be a Bitcoiner who's like, I'm Bitcoin and I'm Bitcoin only. Fuck the stay. I'm all about freedom, civil liberties. Well, I, I, but I can't do that because, you know, I, I, I firstly, not everyone, <laughs> I, I don't believe anarcho-capitalism. I'm not... I'm not I'm not convinced that creates a better world, a nicer world, or a safer world. It potentially creates a crazier world 
where it's all for himself and everyone has to own a gun and i don't want guns in the uk i just don't i, I appreciate why you have them in the us and I've, I've come to learn about it but i don't want that situation so i don't know i i i, I tend to get in a lot of fights or shout out a lot on twitter because i don't follow the bitcoin <laughs> narrative all the time i don't i just don't always agree with everything this kind of this kind of narrative where where you have to be this anarcho-capitalist i think you've got i think it's immature actually and i think it's impractical i think it's much more mature to just try and say look we do live in a world with a state how do we make it better like what eric Voorhees said to me when i said about i can't see this world of libertarianism he said we well, don't need to the starting point is less government let's just try and have five percent less government and see where we get and then another five percent and does that make the world and and that i i think that's a much more mature and practical place to go but just to sit there and you know we're gonna have the armies on the streets in the uk probably within a week i don't want to just go it's just bad because it's authoritarianism i want to just have a fair debate and say hold on is this a good thing could this actually save lives and can we retract from it and and, and will this be a good short-term measure and, and and that's something i'm really struggling with right now because of and if anything, people are going to go, oh, you're a snowflake or you've got no bollocks. You're not going to you're not you're not really willing to take a side. You're just sitting on the fence. And I don't think it's that I'm sitting on the fence. I think I'm genuinely concerned about how we've got to where we've got to and and how we debate these issues. But yeah. <laughs> Funny times, uh, man. I, yeah, I, I also. It's it's you know, it's weird times. I mean, that I like I am uh, I'm like m Unfortunately, the question I ask uh, every person I've had on for the last couple of weeks has been, you know, uh, where are you kind of in an optimism or pessimism cycle? And for me, you know, my answer is um, I'm I, I, like the the short term optimism is that like at least literally this is we're at the end of the first week where everyone was acknowledging this is a real thing. Right. It's literally been only we have one full week on yeah. on our on our docket of, of actually acknowledging it. That's short term optimistic. Short term pessimistic is that. I I think that it's I think that we're accepting we're in the acceptance phase that there's going to be some disruption we haven't yet accepted for how long it's going to be disrupted and we haven't probably really dealt with the economic ramifications for for just regular people not just stock markets and I also think that we haven't even begun to ex experience or understand the the long-term geo geopolitical issues that come out of this um, if there is a, a cause for some amount of long-term optimism, it's that when you have, when the world gets turned upside down, you can either reconstruct it exactly as it was, or you can try to find new narratives, new stories, new tribes, new ways to organize tribes that don't match the old way of thinking. And you know, it's it's not a nothing signal. I actually, I joked on Twitter this morning. I said, one of my top five thoughts during this crisis is, wait, I agree with who? Uh, and it was actually in the context of Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson going hard on uh, on Burr and Kelly Loeffler and a couple others about the potential that they use privileged information about uh, to, to get out of the stock market, you know, when did they were Kelly, publicly talking. Did Kelly do it as well? She's been, 
she's been fighting fighting for her whole life. That this is a very complicated. Whoa. So here's the nuance side: immensely complicated question because you have to figure out like, does she actually have any control over her money? And it, there's a much larger question about how politics should deal with having assets that are outside the market because politicians are going to have advanced information on almost every Always. scenario. Yeah. S- secondly, secondly, like look back at all of our conversations on Bitcoin Twitter since the end of January. It wasn't like this was only politicians who knew how bad this thing could be. Yeah, we all yeah. made decisions in our personal finances. So yeah. those are the sides that are kind of like it's overblown and people are looking for someone to blame. And I do think people are looking for someone to be angry on. The flip side and why people are angry, and I believe legitimately angry, is that when you spend uh, six weeks telling people publicly that it's just the flu and that it's nothing and that we're doing a great job and it's all contained and it's not a thing to worry about and keep going to work. And then meanwhile, you are making an entirely different set of decisions for your life, if that's actually the case. That's just, it's its not just hypocrisy, it's lying. And, in the, and, and underlying all of this is the endangerment of the public, right? Which is, I think, is the, for me, the biggest issue. Like, mm-hmm. I don't care that uh, $3 million was moved uh, although I think it is a little a little fucked and hypocritical, what I care about is that you spent six weeks endangering the lives of people because I just heard from a friend that they lost their 99 year old grandmother because she couldn't get in, and maybe that would have happened no matter what. But if we'd started building you know field hospitals and gotten ventilators and all the sort of things that we needed six weeks ago, like maybe it wouldn't. And uh, so uh, I think. Uh, but, but anyways, like I said, two people who I basically disagree with on almost everything, Ben Shapiro and Tucker Carlson, <laughs> uh, were both very, uh, like, hardcore about this, you know? Now, I don't pay attention to them enough to know if they have other beef with these people, and this is just a convenient media thing either. So it's not so much that I'm like, go those guys now, you know? Although you're, you know, you you had some uh, some interesting things to say about, about Ben Shapiro, at least. It's more just that I think that living in a world where you're not going to cut off something that someone says because you think in advance that you don't agree with them is a is a weirdly healthy place to be uh, i think if one that is also uh, can feel destabilizing sometimes because you're out of the out of the path so i don't know how to uh, as we reconstruct and rearchitect the new world which i i do believe that this is like a fucking forest fire for uh for us um but I, I I hope that we can, my, my fear is that it just does the same thing that happens in power vacuums, which is authoritarianism. Yeah. My hope is that we have a, a chance to kind of organize it differently. Yeah. I think that's a really good place to, to end it, to be honest, because I don't want to add to that. Yeah. I, think, I think you've just given a summary that, and I, I, you've kind of re-articulated my point that is, and I, I'm just going to repeat what you said earlier. It's, I think it's with. I think it's only natural that we're going to see an overreach of the government by now, right now, and we're going to see this globally. And back to what you said is, how do they retract from that position? Because it might be hard for them through the temptations of power and corruption. But rather than try and fight what they're doing now, because we can't, how do we? How do we make it vocal? How do we ensure, as we come out the back end of this, that we don't lose our civil liberties? Because if, they, if they're if using our phones to track us right now, because on the track, the movement of the virus, fine. It's not that I like it, but if it happens, it happens. How do we ensure when we come out the back of this that they don't continue doing that? And and that's, you've re, you've actually shifted my thinking here in that that's, that's almost where I think my my personal focus would be is acceptance of what's going to happen because I can't change it. But what we can do is influence how we come out of this. 
that's kind of where I am. Yeah. I don't know if we can, but I, I yeah, it's a, you know, when, when the, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> well, well, dude, listen, it's always a pleasure. We should do this more often. I don't know why we don't. We should talk more often. Yeah. I always enjoy our conversations. You make me rethink things. You make me reconsider my firmly held positions sometimes. And uh, <laughs> look, it's a strange world. All I'm going to say to you is I'll say to everyone, stay safe, bro. It's um, you know, concerning times. Uh, stay safe in terms of personal health, but also mental health. I think somebody, I, I won't name them because they might not have want me to say it, but somebody also shifted my thinking yesterday. They said, why hasn't anyone talked about the mental health impacts of this at a level where we need to come to an acceptance we are going to see a higher level of suicide through this mm -hmm. process it's only natural that that will happen we have suicide rates the suicide rate is almost certainly going to go up through this as people face very very tough situations um so that's something we need to be aware of but just as a friend just stay safe stay stay healthy and stay mentally healthy and and everyone listening um if anyone is struggling, my DMs are always open. I'm my phone's always available. If someone wants to talk and if I can help in any way, please let me know. Um, but yeah, stay safe, bro. You too, man. Thanks, Dude, man. I'm in. Thanks I'm in. Hold on. What am I doing? I'm concluding your interview like this is mine. I felt like this is the end of mine. <laughs> no, I like. It. I like it. You interview me. That's what happens. You put two podcasters in a room. What happens? Right? Yeah.